We are here on a pretty fun and special day. Um, for those beer drinkers who remember uh, a brewery called Upper Canada, uh, today is a day where, in some ways, it's back. And uh, we're here at the launch of the resurrection, if you will, of Rebellion, one of Upper Canada's flagship beers. Reborn as repatriation, thanks to Steve Himmel, who's here with me from Henderson Brewing. And I'm really happy to have Oliver Dawson, who was the marketing head of Upper Canada back in the glory days in the 80s and 90s. Um, thanks, guys, for taking the time to chat today. Happy to be here. Pleasure. Um, I want to start by Steve asking you how this all came about. I know you've been in beer for a while, as have I, and and uh, Oliver, you as well. Um, why don't you just talk about how this all came to be? So we, uh, you know, we do these Ides beers, we do these monthly one-offs that are about telling Toronto stories. And the story, I mean, Upper Canada, and particularly Rebellion, is such an unbelievably important Toronto story. First of all, the, the Rebellion of 1837 is an important Toronto story, and then the launch of Rebellion and the Rebel Marches. And, and then it even goes a step further because you know, Rebellion as a brand, to me, was the first ever, uh, like, like, active kind of screw you to the big boys brand of a craft beer, of a micro beer. So it was such a good story to tell, and and you know, we reached out to Sleeman to see if we could do it, thinking there's no way, uh, you know, there'd be way too much red tape. But it, they said sure, and so. Having the opportunity to tell that story and to recreate that beer obviously was a good one. I mean, it's a. Yeah. I, you know, I, I started in the beer business in '89 as a brewer at Connors. At that time, the microbrewery business was very different. And like to be able to essentially get in a time machine and go back and redo it is awesome. Yeah. So so that that's how we got that's how we got here. I yeah. Guess. Yeah. Plus, you know, speaking to, we reached out to uh, Viv Jones yep. and a number of other people who were active in the brewing of this beer and talked to them about both the, the challenges of recipe development and, and the challenge of brewing these beers back then. And it was great. Like, it was so insightful. Uh, it really gave us, well, I guess as a modern craft brewer, you know, we have a ton of resources. I mean, they didn't have the internet even back then. No. We have not only the internet, but we have a very friendly community who's always willing to help with questions. We, we call other breweries, we ask them about uh, things like, if we want to um, bottle condition kegs, what's the ratio of yeast and sugar you use? You know, that's a question we can ask. In, in 1980, when was Rebellion? The first Rebellion was 87. In 1987, you couldn't pick up the phone and call the head brewer at Molson and say, hey, guess what? They just hang up on you. And there, again, there was no internet, there was no nothing. So it was really fascinating to chat to them about the challenges uh, around making this beer then. It's, it's all the more an accomplishment to think about what they achieved as a microbrewery in the 80s. Well, I, I want to talk about that. And Oliver, I'd love to get your take on, you know, what was it like to do this kind of beer in 87? I mean, I was still a kid. Like I, I remember when I became legal drinking age, and I saw, I started to taste Upper Canada beers. I, they blew my mind. Right. But I can only imagine what it was like even before then in the '80s to do right. this kind of thing. Well, the story actually, uh, I can tell you how Rebellion was born. 
1987, uh, it was the year of the World Bottled Lager Competition. And, um, uh, and in, I guess, Frank Heaps, you know, who is, of course, running Upper Canada, um, decided uh, that uh, it might be a good idea to enter the World Bottled Lager Competition with a special one-off brew. And so Viv Jones at that time um, came up with a recipe that uh, it was really, uh, uh, it was a, you could call it a strong lager, but it was double poison. It was really like a hellbock, if, yeah. if I'm thinking back to what it was. So they brewed enough for the competition, and the rest of it they put in unmarked bottles. At yeah. this point, the beer did not have a name. It was just a lager beer that was being presented by this small Canadian brewery called Upper Canada. And, uh, and so we were left with, you know, a few skids of two fours, which became staff beer. And then we kegged off the rest and thinking that, well, why don't we just go to some of our better licensees like the Madison and Poppers and, right. and, and, and you know, and, you know, buy these kegs. Well, I mean, didn't they sell out like faster than anything we'd ever made? Of course. Right. And, um, and so then we did and an, we thought, hello, um, maybe we got something here. And, um, and then so he brewed another batch, keg only, and uh, we put that one through the system, again draft, to understand for a brewery uh, in the early days, as probably is still the case today, you know, if you want to try something out on the market to see whether it's going to fly, just, you know, brew a batch, stick it yeah. in the kegs, and you're not paying for any printing or boxes or anything, right? No marketing involved at all, except for the sweat equity of the reps to get out there and yeah. convince bar owners to, to give them a tap for a limited period of time. So, um, so the the uh, continued success of the draft of this yet unnamed beer uh, gave us the clue, and uh, we were uh, actually I believe that might have even have been 1986 that we did it for the competition that was in '87. So the success of this brand gave us the opportunity to start considering a fourth brand at Upper Canada. Yeah. Like a fourth brand that didn't include the Bach, because the Bach was a seasonal special pretty much from the earliest days. And um, Frank Heaps came up with this idea of, uh, of uh, commemorating the 150th anniversary of the Upper Canada Rebellion, which was, of course, in 1837. And somehow, I don't know how, but he somehow secured the rights to the C.W. Jeffries uh, uh, illustration of yeah. the lads marching down Yonge Street, which then became the label. And uh, thus Upper Canada was born, and it really was wonderful demand of bold and honest brew, um, but th th this is language that was torn from the pages of history, yeah. right? Because the notion of rebellion, to your point, Steve, I think that's really vital, that rebellion brand in some ways um, came to signify what we were actually trying to do, and that's rock the boat is to really change the game that had been dominated by really three breweries at yeah. that point. Until Carling was absorbed, there were three breweries who had 99 point whatever percent of the market. Imports were barely even on the map. And, uh, and sure enough, over the years, Rebellion came to signify, uh, I think for people emotionally, um, the resistance to mediocrity, as it were, yeah. right? Uh, the, the freedom to choose and, um, you know, and the, thank you, and the capacity the capacity to actually change and make a difference, yeah. and so, so there's an enormous, um, uh, enormous poetry behind the choice to call it that, the way it was executed, and ultimately uh, to today. Quite frankly, uh, because you could have chosen dark ale or Bach, but it wouldn't have made sense yeah. uh, in terms of really what defined Upper Canada in the history of brewing in Canada. Well, it was kind of it was part of the soul of the brand. In I felt way. from uh, like. 
an outsider looking in because yeah. you know we had lager and dark ale which were always I perceive them as just good quality brews mm-hmm. and then rebellion kind of had this richness to it and now breweries have stories behind brands all the time I mean Steve you're you've done this time uh, time after time with your beers but back then it must have been I mean just hearing you talk about how novel it was to even do a one-off yeah. like now it's just like they happen 200 times a day of course but back then to put effort into creating a backstory was probably quite interesting yeah. and different because that would have been really refreshing because it wasn't nobody did that kind of thing no, no. so it's just also remarkable to think about the fact that you know, Upper Canada started this brewery and they made lager and ale. Like, yeah. okay, essentially generic products. Well, no, I, you know, I, I, I'm going to actually push back on that. I meant generic names, not yeah. products. <laughs> yeah, well, no, no, no. I mean, lager, lager meant very little to people. Ale meant very little to people because, because the, the general public had been so dumbed down, I would argue, uh, with regards to actually how beer is made and, and, and what would distinguish the various styles. The thing about about the lager was uh, uh, it was an attempt and some would argue a failed attempt or a, an okay attempt to replicate uh, what would you really call a standard southern German export beer right so but in order to achieve that uh, the first brewer his name was Klaus Ants the brew house came from Germany uh, the yeast was German uh, they used Hallertauer Hersbrucker Nordbrau I mean they were really replicating as best they could they were trying to replicate a, a sort of classic German uh, style lager. The, the dark ale, and this is what a lot of people don't recognize. See, Klaus Hans, he was German. He doesn't know what a, an English dark ale is, so he brought over a German top fermenting yeast. So what dark ale was in its original incarnation was an alt beer. Yeah. Now, they, didn't, yeah. they didn't promote it like that because they were staying within an English, I guess, ale had to be English and lager had to be German, right? Um, but in fact, it was an alt beer. And when Klaus Ants left and Viv came on the scene, he changed the yeast. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, because because he didn't know how to handle this wacky German yeast because it gave different flavors than what he was used to. Yeah. And so he anglicized the dark ale, interestingly enough. And I never forget when that happened. And of course, into the pipeline, the beer, the new tasting beer, would eventually come. I would really get complaints. What'd you do to the dark ale? Well, a lot of people said, this tastes like shite, right? <laughs> Whereas other people had really grown accustomed to this unique, I guess, Rhineland flavor. I don't know what it was. I can't yeah. even remember. But but it's funny um, how that ultimately evolved. And then and then dark ale became sort of a mainstream product that whose only real competition uh, was, um, oh, um, um, Toby's. Oh yeah, Toby's. Toby's. Oh, I remember that. <laughs> so, oh, I, I remember. We sound, like, sound like we're all very old. Um, but Toby's, Toby's was is one of the one of the only big beers you could get with flavor. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah was, I remember that. And it was dark. It was brewed by Carling. Yeah. And any pub that you dare to get into. Now, let's keep in mind also the laws in Ontario had only just changed to allow you to go to a bar and get your own beer. Prior to that, you had to be sitting down, and the beer would have to be brought to you. That's how regressive the laws were until the 1980s. Yeah. So the yeah. concept of the English pub didn't actually come to fruition until just before the craft beer movement. So you couldn't go to the bar planet. and get no. a glass? No, you had to be in your own chair. You weren't allowed yeah. to, in fact, if I'm not mistaken, you were not allowed to stand up with the beer full stop. No. 
So if you had to pee, you couldn't get up. Oh, you had to sit. So anyway, so there were a lot of other changes that were taking place at that time. And uh, uh, anyway, I mean, it's it's all part of it. But Toby's was the only real dark beer that you could get. And uh, you know to, to offer a difference, and of course, who they were appealing to were the ex the expats. Yeah, a whole wave of immigration that came over in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, right. They wanted some kind of Englishy sort of thing, and uh, so it's, anyway, it's interesting. So I'll shut up now. But but you know those two first beers, and I know because as a sales rep, this is where I started out to go into a bar where you know you'd walk in with your six pack. You know that that the bar owner would let you do, and uh, sit at the bar, and uh, they'd allow you to uh, uh, you know crack open some samples and sample the folks at the bar, and um, and somebody would say, uh, you don't know, come in and say, well I've got a lager and a dark ale. Well I'm an ale man. Oh you're an ale man, and I, on more than several occasions people would drink the dark ale and literally spit it out because the flavors that we were offering, even though Toby's was on the market. We're just too outrageously full yeah. and and uh, uh, complex, and so we were confusing people who yeah. had been so dumbed down over the years. And it's pretty. Now look today. I mean, oh my goodness! Oh, so the wilder much. the beer, the better, right? So things have truly changed, of course. But but uh, anyway. Yeah. So. Well, I I always think when I reflect on Upper Canada, one of the things that I, I like I just ponder is how back then there was so few comparators. You had no idea. I mean, personally, I had no idea if what I was drinking was really any, like, if it was within a style, if it was better or worse than anything else, because there was nothing else. I remember just trying stuff because I wanted to try new things, and I'm like, okay, that's different. But it's funny because I just had no idea if it was like what I was really drinking because I had no other frame of reference. So, so Steve, I want to ask you about this beer, and you know, I was reading the notes on the launch and how Steve Beaumont said how the beer was almost unclassifiable at the time, how it was, I think, technically labeled a malt liquor. Yes, it was, yeah. How it had, like, Hallertau. So, but it, by today's standards, I mean, like, there's a lot more awareness of definition. What is this beer today? Like, what was it like to rebrew it? And what is what is it? Because I think back then, none of us really knew. We just knew it's a different beer. It tastes great. So you have to remember that a 6% beer in 1987 was shockingly outrageous. Yeah. Uh, because beers were either 5% or they were 4%. And there was really no... Nothing it, else. Nothing else. There was Brodeur right. at 6 or 6.5. But the, the, the idea, like, that was kind of... In a world of so much sameness, jumping up in alcohol percentage was a was a big way to create differentiation. And I think you know, so and Rebellion did a lot of other things different. I mean, one thing I think we got really close is the color. And I remember you know ordering a lager that was this color in 1987 was also very different. Um, so to rebrew the beer, I think the challenge for us was. There were many different versions of the recipe floating around, and right. everybody we spoke to gave us a couple of tips, and the tips didn't always... Always line up? Yeah, they didn't always line up. Like, well, we can't do that and that. No. And so it was a bit challenging, and I'll be honest, while I think that when I had my first sip of this, a wave of memories rushed back, I, I don't think we nailed it perfectly. I think the spirit's there, but I do think that this beer came out a touch sweeter than the original 
the hop character is a little diminished where, from where it should be. But again, it was it was quite challenging to to bring it to life. Now, well, if I may say, yes. Um, uh, despite all of the self-effacing criticism here that uh, that you're going public with, uh, I, I'd just like to quote uh, words from uh, from Richard Drench, and he says, "It's a nice drop." So, congratulations. Thank you very much. No, and 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 we we are very like I'm thrilled. I, I think that part of this was. Part of the Eid series of beers is telling the story, and there's a nice beer that goes with it. I mean, if you ask me, the, a beer and a story is a pretty good twofer. Oh yeah. So, we try to make beers that bring the story to life, and if you, and this is a good story that should be told. The story of Upper Canada is lost on a lot of people who are under 35. It's a story that should be told, and we replicated the beer pretty well. Yeah. That to me is is enough of a win. And if we didn't get it exactly right, we at least brought the story back into the mainstream. Yeah. Well, speaking of story, Oliver, I want to ask you how you brought those to life back then. Because, of course, in those days, there was no internet, there was no social media, limited ways of getting in touch with people. And, of course, I remember I was a subscriber to your print loyalist newsletter. Right, right. What was it like getting the word out about your beer back in, in those days before there was a lot of instant communication like right. we have today. Well, the thing... You know, I want to interrupt you here because I cannot believe that this thing existed. Right? So I, I brought this as a prop. This is this is your mailing. Mailing. Right. Mailing. You can refer to this as you see fit, but go ahead where you are. Right. I remember and eagerly anticipating the Upper Canada mailing coming imagine? to my parents' house where I would look through look through the news and I'm like, oh, yes. I mean, how... Like, what a... Again, dating us. What a... What a, what a time it was to expect something well, to come in the mail to learn what was happening and wait for it and then and then savor it yeah you know savor the yeah. paper I bet even you smelt it like you know there was this sense of this is something valuable yeah well I, I think now this was late in the, yes. this was towards the end right oh. so uh, so to do this the way that I envisioned doing it cost a lot of money so we wouldn't have had the money to do this in the earliest days however that said I think that you, you could probably divided in the whole um, uh, marketing movement of Upper Canada uh, over the years, really the, the only way to get the word out was word of mouth in yeah. the earliest days. And the only and the best way to get word of mouth was to get it into bars. So the licensee strategy, um, if you can call it that, was guerrilla, it was relationship-based, it was service-based, uh, and we out muscled, uh, not muscled is the wrong word, we outsmarted the big guys. Yeah. And, and we, we the, to, to go into a bar and to get them to dedicate a tap, when most bars back then had two taps, maybe only one, yeah. right? And to innovate, for example, we discovered very early on that there were a, a plethora of, of vintage 1950s fridges, which today are collector's items that were sitting on the side of the road. And so we thought, well, there's a fridge. That's what you need for draft, right? Yeah. Let's convert that into a draft machine. And so they, these we called them special tire fridges. I, I don't know where that name even came from because within that culture, a whole language emerged. And these special tire fridges meant that we could go into a bar that had shut us down out of one of the two or four, maybe usually maximum four taps. We weren't on. So we said, well, what if we brought you a draft machine that we could afford, right? And bingo. And so these machines would go out. And we had to find a way. 
And so the word of mouth spread. So finally, by the 90s, the mid-90s, uh, we become quite well-known. The brand, All that work starts to pay off. And Upper Canada is, a, is one of the leading, the leading craft beer brand uh, in the premium you know, craft beer sector uh, at that time. And so uh, the Loyalist was, was something I'd long wanted to do. Um, but basically the whole notion was you create community. And you t- and you you create a conversation with people. That, that's what Facebook thought of doing years and years ago. But but that seemed to make sense. And because we were also becoming specialists in events, we would tie it to events. So people coming down to the event would then get a letter talking about the event they came to, and and it just becomes cyclical and more and more energy. You know, in theory, right? Had it lasted, more and more energy would have come to it, and this, of course, could have grown to become its own you know, beer magazine in a way, I suppose. You know, just but, must must have been so much effort to do to do that. Yeah, like it must the, have, like just to that, think about. But a labor of love. Yeah, I had no idea if people were going to turn up. It's not like you you could, you could send out this Facebook invite and see that 63 people were interested. Yeah. It's just like I don't know. Is anyone going to show? I know, and they did. And they did. How did the Rebel March? Like, how did the Rebel March get off the ground? And you know, it had so much momentum for a few years. Yeah. That was such a so, brave thing to do in a pre-internet time. So it, it would, it, well, obviously, you can recreate the march, which is another form of pub crawl. Only this one is historically legitimated and tied to a brand, right? So it made sense because all we had to do was start at Eglinton and go and get a bunch of people from Upper Canada and all their friends and visit all the bars along Young Street that carried Rebellion, which is exactly what we did. And we'd be in costume and, and ham it up and... And quite honestly, it was a great excuse every every year uh, to know that at least on that day you would get schnockered. Oh, yeah. there, was, there was nothing. There was nothing. There was no surprise there. It was totally planned for. And you know, sometimes in life, it's good to have days where you can plan that sort of thing. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Um, I know we're at the at the launch party, but I want to ask. I'd like to ask both of you. Do you have? One or two favorite memories of Upper Canada. I mean, Oliver, you worked with them professionally. Steve, you were a fan. Um, I know I've got some of my own. I mean, I sort of I recount the tours I took with my university buddies, and I even said to Oliver, we drank as many free samples as we could until they kicked us out. Right. I remember. I think it was the first time I ever had a keg in my own house. Was Upper Canada because you could get a keg from them. And I thought that was the most novel thing in the world to have our own. And know, it was pump keg. It was not uh, that we would take up to my parents' cottage. Um, but Steve, I mean Oliver, like just I'd like to ask both of you, like, do you have a like if you think back to those days, like if there's something that really stands out as being special, special memories. You know, as these words were coming out of your mouth, I was thinking, like, which story do I tell? And I've landed on one particular story, but it was really more about the success of of, of events and innovation. And uh, back uh, back in those days, the Toronto Symphony had uh, had just appointed their new conductor, and his name was Yukapeka Saraste from Finland, and he hadn't yet stood on the podium to lead the Toronto Symphony, but he'd been appointed and he had just moved to town with his wife and his and his and his children. And um, um, we created a fundraising event at the brewery 
where, uh, where the, the bass section of the Toronto Symphony came into the brewery and we literally put chairs in the facility, not in a reception room, but in amongst the bottle washer and the yeah. line. And we built a stage and sure enough, the bass section came in and Yuka Pekka Sarasta came. The place was packed. We, I don't remember how much money we, we raised. The place was packed, and before he stood on the stage at Roy Thompson Hall, Yuka Pekasaraste came up, picked up his fiddle, because he's a violinist originally, picked up, and it, it, the first piece of music he played in Toronto was at Upper Canada Brewery. Wow. And at a moment, I, I, I think we were all very proud. You know, but that defined the notion, I think, that the brewery is not just a facility. The brewery is a place of community, yeah. and you should turn it into the into that where the public is sort of part of the process, and they can enjoy art on the walls and all of these things. These are innovations that that we pioneered. That I'm, I'm so, everybody does it, but so now, proud of it. Yeah. But we we created it. This is why they were innovators, Upper Canada. Is that and so my story is similar. For me, as a young beer drinker, the big breweries were so cold and distant. And to be fair, they were also like big companies, scary, like, you know, Molson and the Bat were like these, uh, like the way that the bank feels when you go into the bank to ask for your first mortgage, that's kind yeah. of the way the brewers felt. Yeah. When Upper Canada opened their doors, there was this sense that they were you, that mm. the people selling Upper Canada were also just people like you and that you yeah. could meet them. And when you, and I, one of my favorite places to drink Upper Canada was Squirrelies. Oh, of course. And yeah. when, you, when you went into Squirrelies, the feeling drinking Upper Canada in Squirrelies was one of like, you know, welcome. Whereas, you know, drinking the, the big brewery beers never felt like that. And that was the thing that I remember. It's like, oh, wait a minute. You know, like beer doesn't have to be a, a process. A, a, like a like an exchange, like a like a, it's like a transaction. I'm, I'm the tiny, yeah. and they're the huge. Yeah. It's like we are one, and I, I love that feeling. Which I ended up one of my friends, uh, a guy named Barry Fitzgerald. You might remember Barry. Barry. Of course. Barry had one of those great Upper Canada fridges in his apartment. I remember you know going down and drinking beer out of that out of that tap fridge, and there was this feeling that Upper Canada was a brand that was accessible. And it changed the way I thought about beer. Yeah. Beer, beer was no longer a uh, like something you you had to earn. Beer was just something that you shared. Yeah. yeah. And that to me, that's my opportunity. It's so true. Yeah. I. Uh, it's funny. Like I, to this day, every time I'm walking down Atlantic Avenue, I think about doing that way back when. Yeah. I mean, back then there was nothing there. There was nothing. I mean, imagine if they had the property today. Please. But I always felt that it was a brewery that I knew. Yes, you know, right. it was the first time I ever visited a brewery. And it was the first time I ever thought that you could visit breweries. And again, like, it's such a, you take these things for granted, just like the beer styles to this day. But those things, going into a brewery and just saying hi and like chit-chatting, I, I mean, I feel like Oliver, I've known you for 20 years, yeah. even though I think we just met today. I know, it's weird. Because eh? well, I might have given you this, a, I might have yeah. given you a tour. Yeah. I remember taking that tour every time I could because I knew it meant some more free samples. <laughs> so uh, yeah. Um, so anyway, it's great to um, great to see a little bit of Upper Canada come back to life. Right. Um, well, thank you, Steve. For, so for, such a pleasure, uh, a thrill. In fact, this is for sure one of the thrills of my lifetime because as a kid, like as a twenty-year-old, I I was just so impressed at how Upper Canada treated me. 
Mm-hmm. And now yeah. that I'm a little older and I've got this nice base, it's wonderful to kind of return the favor and say, you know what, you treated me great, I want to show my love, and it's, it's fantastic to have this brand sort of come to life. And Oliver brought all the ephemery, like all the Upper oh. Canada stuff we have is from Oliver's collection. And it's great to pull this stuff out. You can see it's made by hand, and you can see it's made with love. And that, to me, is super yeah. important. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's great. So uh, I so, want to say two yeah. things about Selena. Go. The first off, the first thing I want to say is I want to recognize that Sleeman taking over Upper Canada is a great example of what today's small breweries should be thinking about. If you're building a brewery to sell it, and your idea is to open a brewery, work it for five years, and sell it to a big brewery, what you've got to recognize is that what that means is that your brewery will die, that your brand will die, because your Upper Canada was the people who worked there. We're seeing that today. Yeah. When Sleeman bought Upper Canada, I don't think they recognized that they weren't buying a brand. They were buying all. They were buying the collective soul of these people. And when they cut the people out, there was nothing left. Yeah. That's number one thing I want to say. And I think that's an important warning to all the breweries out there who think that their payout in five years is there. I don't know if it is. The second thing I want to say is that Sleeman is mature today. When we called them up and we asked to do this, they agreed because it was a fun, good idea. And they were excellent in giving access to recipes and material. They brought some of the stuff, a fraction of what Oliver brought. But they were up for it. They were game. And I, I really have to give them credit you know, 20 years later, sure. they've actually been a pretty good partner. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, uh, one positive, one negative uh, thing to say about that, and I think it's worth noting. Sure, yeah. absolutely. absolutely. I concur. Thank you, Oliver. I concur. Uh, yeah, it's it's quite something looking at all the historical artifacts. I remember those from the old days, and you can see like a lot of today's brewing world in that stuff. Yeah. Like, you know, those things. I just, I, I, I still can't get over what what it must have been like to do that then with yeah. nothing around you. Yeah, yeah. Well, they invented it. Like, yeah, you know, Upper Canada is like, is like rock and roll when there was no rock and roll. They yeah. just, if you look at, if you look at the stuff that we have on display here, you will see, as you've just said, all the things that we all do as rope. Like we just like, oh yeah, that's what you do when you have a small brewery. And Upper Canada really invented it all, and they deserve all the credit. Yeah. I'm sad that uh, I'm sad you know, that Frank Heaps isn't here. I don't know how he would feel about all this, yeah, yeah. but yeah. Well, the, you know the the Upper Canada's culture was incredible at the time. Well, yeah. and you know what, I have to uh, give Frank the credit for that. You can love him, you can hate him, or somewhere in between. Um, but the one thing that he did, and also Greg Cromwell and uh, Greg well, Taylor, sure, uh, and maybe Taylor. Uh, as the as uh, as the best expression, um, I think that that there was an inherent respect for the individual, and when I say respect, I don't mean in a sort of politically correct way. I mean respect for the individual and the personality that we each have, and we're all unique, and that if you can create the conditions and the environment for the people that work for you. Uh, to not just buy into your brand, but to to become themselves through that brand, themselves, release their own potential through that, and be themselves as outrageous as that might be, and often, quite frankly, was. Um, that that uh, that 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 is how a culture is born, and the norms establish themselves over time. But there's one thing that no one ever loses sight of, and that's the love for the brand, the love for the customer, 
um, and and the community that supports it. And and that that was something. That's one of the reasons why, in my opinion, that that Upper Canada Salesforce. Uh, I don't know if a Salesforce like that will ever come again because it was an incredible group of people that I am, was so privileged to go through this experience with. We, we, we fought, I mean, I'll say a battle, but what, what we went through together is what you saw here today. Uh, 20 years, uh, some people I haven't seen in that long, and it's like it's yesterday because yeah. we were there. We were there, and if you were there, you get it, yeah. and that's wonderful. Great. Well, um, it's amazing that for those that weren't there, they can try a little bit of it today. Absolutely. So, uh, so guys, it's been so great Cheers, uh, chatting you, about uh, Upper Canada and uh, those great memories. And thanks, Steve, for uh, bringing it back to life even for a short period of time. Right Cheers. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you. Good night.